Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity again to come before you and your word, that you let us humble ourselves before your mighty hand. We count this a privilege to be able to gather together in freedom like this and to learn your perfect word. Help us not be familiar with this amazing thing and this amazing resource you've given us to know about you yourself. For you are the word. Father, we ask for prayer for those sick in our congregation, for those that are truly struggling. You know who they are, and we ask that you give them greater and greater perseverance. Give them more faith to bear the cross you've asked them to bear. To bring you the most glory before we meet you at home one day forever. Father, we ask that you bless this message, that your spirit guide us and teach us into what we need to know this evening for our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. Well, again, why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part 68. So apparently, one thing that we... Uh, need to correct, I guess you might say, or get with it, is that we're pretty familiar people. Probably just not in this church, but um, how many times has the Spirit brought this topic of familiarity up with us over the years? And it is a curse on the whole, on the whole human race. We all you know, have that embedded in our flesh. But once again, the Spirit's saying, <laughs> don't be familiar. Don't not appreciate the things of God in your life, all the good things that God gives you, even the, the smallest things, because all good things are from God above. So don't be one of those people. And if you're miserable, that's usually the reason why, because you forget all the good graces in your life. You take them for granted, and you start looking at things you don't have, for example, or you look at the difficulties in your life where you forget some of the very good things in your life. We're so easily discontent, aren't we? I mean, as humans, as people, we're like, let me look for the thing that, you know, I could complain about instead of look for the things that I have. We're horrible like that. And it is a disease of the flesh. And only the Word can rescue us from that gloomy perspective. Only the Word and the power of the Word. On the board, remember this, James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Every good thing given. Not some. How often do we look at the big things and, and say, oh, well, I, I could tell those are from God, right? They're like, you know, they're worth their weight, you know. But what about the 500 other little things in your life that you totally don't even think about and take for granted that are good? So... We're like shunning, we're almost insulting God by not thanking Him for all the good things that He provides us. How many times do we forget to thank God for all the good little things in our lives, things that we take for granted, such as being able to breathe without pain? You don't even think about that if you don't have pain. But there are people that can't breathe without pain. How about having eyes to see? Why aren't you blind? Why weren't you born blind? Why weren't we born in a country that, you know, we couldn't get glasses? I wouldn't be able to see you right now. Not really, the little things though, like provisions, divine provisions. All good things are from God, our Father above. How about having enough food to eat each day? You take that for granted? I think probably every American does, even, even the homeless probably. We take for granted, as though it's a norm, as though it's a should have, when most of the world goes without food on a daily basis, the majority. How about having the ability and freedom to walk wherever you desire to walk? You don't live in 
a communist nation or a nation under Sharia law, or if you walk the wrong place at the wrong time, they have the right to kill you or whatever. So these are all good things, aren't they? Do <laughs> you realize how precious they are when you lose them? Part of our curse. So, but we don't have to be that way. We can choose to look at it the other way. We can choose to open our eyes and say, look at all these solid good things, these wonderful little things I have. Graces that God didn't have to grace me with. Thanking God for his gentleness and his mercy towards you. Because who are you to even be born in America? How about being thankful for having our own Bible? Look at this pretty young lady. Look how happy she is from getting her own Bible. This is from the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. And people in other countries, in poor countries, most of them don't have their own Bible. Do you take that for granted? That you can open the Word of God anytime you want? That you don't have to wonder what it says in that book because you don't have one, you can't find one? Crazy. Again, James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So it's only the flesh that gets in the way and interrupts our gratefulness for the many good things that we have in life. You know, we go through our day, 24 hours, right? Hopefully you're getting the word in there because the other 23 hours, you're, you're bombarded by the world to be ungrateful, to look for more things to satisfy you, to look for more things for some pseudo-temporary happiness that fades away. You know, it's like the new car thing, right? You buy a new car and you're all excited. And nobody, God forbid, anyone gets a dent on it or any dirt on it whatsoever. And 30 days later, you could care less what happened to your car. <laughs> I'm thinking of a person in particular. The bumper was hanging off this new car. The bumper was detached. And they were so upset at first. Well, six months later, it's still there. And... Never mentioned, don't care about fixing it. What is that? That's the curse of familiarity, really, right? And I need something new to make me happy. And then what? It's like we brush it off. So the Word of God is like our only refuge and our only uh, haven to get away from that system of thinking because it's a curse that makes you unhappy. Familiarity makes you unhappy. It makes you miserable. But eating the Word and even obeying the Word every day such as praying without ceasing, for example, that'll keep you grateful. That'll keep you reminding yourself of the good things that your Father in Heaven has given you. So the inevitable truth, uh, at least from the flesh's point of view, is that the flesh is forever implacable. It breeds malcontent by never being satisfied with the grace of God. So if you're not satisfied, um, if you're looking at the negatives instead of the positives, you're listening to your flesh. Because, again, you, you could have so many things, good things you have right now taken away from you, and you'd still be blessed compared to a lot of people in the world. There's always someone worse than you. People that can't breathe without pain, for example. So, call out the flesh for what it is and what it's doing. As we've also been noting, we take familiar, the very miracle and gift of life itself. And when we do that, and it is us, it's ourselves that do that to ourselves, we do that to our own unhappiness. We choose to be stuck in a wrong perspective about life. It's like drowning, you know? It's like you choose to get in that situation. And it's just a uh, dissatisfaction. But God's thrown us a lifeline. His word is the lifeline. Daily eating that is going to deliver us from all kinds of evil, which includes familiarity. So on the board, we saw on Sunday, familiarity's plague. Life is a miracle that we are way too familiar with. We take things for granted, losing sight of the fact that life abounds all around us even. We don't even deserve to be alive. 
And the Spirit gave us this example of 1 Peter 3.18. When's the last time you read a verse like that and really took the time to step back and be blown away by the truth of it? And that these things that are written are true about you by grace. Sometimes we rush through scriptures. You know, I do it all the time. You say, oh, I've read that before, and you start breezing over it um, as though it weren't holy. So if we take the time and we count the meaning of every phrase, you know, if we, if we take the time to say, what is this really saying with the faith of a child? It becomes a great blessing in our souls, doesn't it? If you're honest, if you, if you treat it that way, if you treat it as holy, if you have that kind of reverence for the Word of God, and you don't look at it like something you already know, but as something that's endless, well, then all of a sudden you start taking in a form of happiness, you know, a form of awe for God, and He shows you more and more things every time, as you know. But we're the ones that suffer a lack of peace when we don't take the time to appreciate God's Word and the good news within it. We even take that for granted, which is pretty sad. So when we're unhappy, can we conclude it's ourselves, doing it to ourselves? Is that a fair statement? When we're unhappy, we're doing it to ourselves. Our perspective is wrong. We've heard this from the Spirit over and over. Can we conclude we're focusing on the wrong things and not having faith that God is with us and that God is for us, even when things aren't all going right? It's our own fault. It's our own decision to look at the wrong things. But when we appreciate verses like this on the board, 1 Peter 3.18, we can immediately regain a rejoicing perspective that God wants us to have every day. He wants us to have a rejoicing perspective. Be grateful, right, in all things, for all things. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's like a seesaw of emotions, if you really take each phrase in for what it means. And we take this whole, that whole thing for granted right there, that that victory in this one verse from, from death to life. Because of Christ, we take it for granted. Yet verses like this, if we, if we treat them as holy, so to speak, we can come out of it with a rejoicing perspective. Like, wow, I really do have more to be grateful for than I'm admitting or realizing. So the power is in Christ, and Christ is the Word. Amen? It's really that simple. So when we lose the Word, we lose that the influence of Christ in our lives at that time, at that, in that day. Without the victory of Christ, as proclaimed in the Word, man would have zero hope, as we know, zero hope. But with Him, we who believe have access to all power through Christ alone. And these are the things we so easily forget, that we can turn to God in humility any time, any day, and say, okay, I've been out of line here. My perspective's been off. I've been miserable. Obviously, I'm not being grateful for what you have given me or that this is the right place for me, even though it's not comfortable wherever you might be in life. This is the right place. You have me here right now for a reason. So I'm going to repent and realize that you you can give me the power to handle this right now. So thank you. I'm going to accept that gift. We take these things, even this access to his power for granted. We spoke last week also of the irony of the fact that when man finally gives up trying to hold on to his own power, he gets access to all power. Ridiculous. We're holding on to our own power, holding on, holding on, holding on. Meanwhile, you know, pushing off God's power. I don't really need your power or I don't really believe in your power for me. But when we finally give up and let go, We have access to all power. It's a crazy truth. So again, only daily eating the Word of God can keep us from this curse of familiarity. 
And we're reminded of this very precious principle on the board. Only God has the power to save man. Don't take that principle for granted. That is precious. That is so simple, but that is so special to recall, to dwell on, to uh, rely on. Only God has the power to save man. Thank God. We'll be running around like, you know, on the treadmill, I guess. Trying to earn our way, but never getting there. Man does not save man, not himself, nor others, by doing this or that. Only God can save man. And that's where freedom comes in, when we finally accept that. Man can kick against this all he wants. Religion can continue to invent ways for man to satisfy God on his own. But no matter how strongly someone believes in the wrong thing, it will never provide any real power to save. On the board, it's another way to say it, the truth never changes just because a person denies it. And we should remind our friends of this, the ones that are the skeptics, the eternal skeptics. I want to believe, but I can't believe, or whatever they're floundering in their souls going on. You should remind them this. You know that the truth isn't going to change just because you don't believe it's true. When you die, you're going to see it's all true, and it might be too late. Just because you really honestly, in your heart, don't believe it doesn't mean it's not real or it's not true. Man can be totally convinced something's true, even willing to die for it. But if it's not in line with the truth of the word, they're going to be found wanting in the end. And they'll never end up with a true rejoicing perspective that the Lord wants them to have. They're going to miss out. I mean, like God did all he did to give us life and life abundantly. Which includes in this life, in the devil's world, things like peace and contentment and like gratitude, happiness even from that, joy, hope, perseverance, love. These wonderful things that that save us daily. He wants us to have. He died for us to have. But people settle for counterfeits that never truly satisfy. Like the shiny new car that has to stay perfect. And then it's discarded mentally 30 days later. The one thing in life that we have to set our minds on, everybody, which I think the Spirit's telling us over the last couple of weeks, we have to set our minds and decide to never back down on the fact that the Bible is the Word of God. And set your minds now on that. In other words, don't wait for the testing to before you quote-unquote make up your mind or decide you're going to stand firm in that truth. Do it now. Because you will be attacked. The kingdom of darkness will come at you from different directions with different lies and different suggestions, different proofs that they say invalidate the word of God. So you need to be ready to stand firm when that happens and guard your heart and don't buy that lie. As last week's blog stated, the kingdom of darkness will attack you often through unbelievers so that you doubt the veracity of the scriptures. On the board, we saw uh, the blog, just a little summary on Sunday. The Bible is God's testimony. Do not be open-minded about your faith, my dear fellow believers. In other words, like guard your heart. Be careful what you let in. Be careful what you hear from people as true or as even good information. Do not be open-minded about your faith, my dear fellow believers. Know that Holy Scripture is just that, holy. Do not be deceived or pressured into thinking that you are inferior in your righteous posture about the inerrancy of the Bible and its divine author. Don't feel like insecure about that, that you're sticking up for the Word of God when everyone around you isn't. You, you go for it and have the joy of the Spirit because you know it's true. And don't apologize for the fruit of your faith because in the end you're going to be shown true, correct. Because the word of God is true. So let people laugh, let people mock at the word to their own destruction, really. But you stand firm. The Bible is the only anchor for our souls in this devil's world. It's the only thing that's going to keep us secure 
and at peace. And we must never be shy to give it the full credit it deserves as the truth. I mean, listen, there's times when I've witnessed to people, I've had people, um, you know, we start a conversation about God, let's say, maybe about salvation, maybe about Christ. And then there's this thing in my flesh that is holding me back from saying the Bible is the Word of God. Like, whether it's their reaction I'm expecting, uh, whether they, you know, are going to shut me off at that point, whatever. But there's something in the flesh that makes you not want to be uh, so bold and confident. It makes you want to protect yourself almost. So, you know, be on guard for that. We should be boasting in the Word and be ready to be laughed at and be willing to be laughed at because that's what Christ said. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they call you a Bible thumper, good. You should rejoice that you're suffering for Jesus' name. In reality. And you, we get rewarded for that kind of stuff. Which is crazy. We don't deserve. But we should give the word of God its full due as the truth. And not hold back. Let the fruit of your faith be evident. Boast of the very word of God that gives you the hope that the rest of the world doesn't possess. And you know what? When things go bad, like really bad, those same people that were mocking you are going to be coming back to you, saying, what's going on? Tell me more about the Bible. When, if another 9-11 happens, this church is going to be packed. And for a couple weeks anyway, people will be interested. But those same people that laughed at you are going to be coming to you for answers. Because there's got to be an answer, because I don't have any. What other answer is there besides the Word of God? Where else are you going to find truth? So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 10.19. Hebrews 10.19. We read this on Sunday. Let's read this passage to uh, emphasize this point on our assurance. already tell I'm not going to finish my lesson. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. You're going to be restored in the end, even if you get persecuted. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our God and Father desires for us to live with this full assurance of faith and this full assurance in His Word. He, as our good Father, wants His children to know they can rest being in His hands even rest in eternal life itself starting now. Not starting at death. Starting right now. We should be living in freedom. But many people live in fear because they're trapped in religion that doesn't tell them the whole truth. So regarding living in fear and not freedom, it's an awful thing to think that the God who supposedly saves you isn't interested in giving you the assurance of such a thing. Yet that is precisely how most so-called Christians live. They do not know the precious scriptures. Again, the Word of God isn't their foundation. The Word of God isn't their um, anchor or their resource for truth. It's become a religious thing. It's become a tradition thing, whatever, in certain religions. They don't hang their hat on the Word of God. They hang it on something else, and they go to this for, you know, preferences. Turn in your Bibles to John 10, 27. 
There are so many precious promises God wants everyone to know, but they're not willing. Even believers in some cases. But he wants us to, to rest in our eternal life even now. He's not like playing a game. John ten twenty seven. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And turn to 1 John 5, verse 9. 1 John 5, verse 9. This passage goes right along with the title to the blog, which was, The Bible is God's Testimony. 1 John 5, 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. Where has he done this? Where, where's the only place to find the testimony from God to us? Where else are you going to find the testimony of God about his son or about eternal life? Nowhere but the word, right? So he has testified concerning his son. Verse 10, the one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's full assurance of the faith that God wants us to have. And there's no reason not to have. We're not like those who are stuck in religion that don't even turn to the, don't even read their Bibles at all in many cases. And the religion lies to them about their own goodness and they have some kind of a false hope of getting to heaven. That is like a house of cards they're trying to hold up. It's because we know and admit that we're not good enough that we can fully place our faith in the Savior and enjoy the fruit of His good work done on our behalf. But that's because we read our Bibles. We know how bad we are. 1 Peter 3.18 again, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. God offers to all who humble themselves before Him true faith. And true saving faith saves. It gives eternal life right now in the here and now, and it provides power. Faith is power, remember. Turn again to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Remember, it's God who gives faith. And with faith, all things are possible. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So there we see assurance again. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What things? The things in the Word that we're told about, the promises of God that we're told about. These are the things we have conviction about by faith. Another translation I've just seen in the past on the board in the New King James Version calls faith a substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But this is supernatural, folks. People can rationalize and try to analyze the Bible all they want, but if they don't decide to have faith, if they don't decide to receive faith from God and they keep putting up their hand, they're not going to see it. 
Their eyes are going to stay closed. They're going to stay blind. But faith opens up all those doors. It gives hope. So you can't explain that verse on the board to anybody, really, because it's a supernatural thing. And it takes uh, a willingness, a humility to receive these things from God. In our discussion about false religion last week, we also concluded regarding the miracle of rebirth. Why does a religious Christian, quote-unquote, not understand the concept of being born again when it's something that Jesus said? In John chapter 3, for example. The answer is that human rationalism is not true faith. A religious, unbelieving Christian does not possess the faith necessary that the Bible is the Word of God. Again, people want to stay in control. They don't want to have to answer to anybody for their sins. So they willingly stay living in a lie. You live your life, I'll live my life. All right? Don't challenge me on what I'm doing. Don't say I'm wrong, because how do you know I'm wrong? You know, maybe you're wrong. Blah, 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 blah. When they have no evidence backing up their beliefs. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe that's how God really is, whatever you're claiming? Why? Is it strictly what you're hoping God is? Is it strictly to keep control in your life and be your own sovereign? Is that why? I mean, people will, you know, won't talk about it sometimes. But as the Spirit reminded us, that's what happens when the clay wants to talk back to the sculptor. They create their own world. And religious people are insecure because they are loosed from sovereignty. They don't realize that until they surrender to God's sovereignty, they're not going to be secure. You know, it's kind of the opposite of the way the flesh would think. A person who dismisses the Bible as the very Word of God is then able to supplant God with themselves. After all, if the Bible isn't God's Word, then where can one find it? How do you know the truth about God? Where, where are you getting your answers? Where are you going for that answer? Is it strictly by your experience, by what you feel, by what you even hope? Well, such is the fabric of every errant religion ever conceived by man. That's how it goes. And if you dig deep enough, uh, most people, they deny the Word of God because it offends them in some way. And so many times what's funny is they didn't even read it themselves. They heard this is what's in the Bible. So because they don't like that thing they heard is in the Bible, they shut it down. They choose to turn their backs on it because it offends their own desires even, what they want God to be like. So they won't admit the sovereignty of the Word of God, and they'll play the sovereign, picking and choosing what they like or what they want God to be, convenient, and they play a role that they don't have the power to maintain or fulfill. If, they, if they're playing the sovereign, if, you know, if in a way they're claiming sovereignty themselves, that they control their own life, even the theory of being a good person to earn your way and being good enough, that lie of being in control, well, you can't fulfill it in the end. When you die, you don't have the power to make it happen. You don't have the power to make that final decision. I was good enough. You are literally powerless. But people push it off, push it off, and push it off. Regarding the true God, God is both love and wrath. Neither facet is present in his essence without the other. Only the human flesh is offended by the wrath of God. And again, real power is never lopsided. This is why the right way to think about Jesus Christ is as the lion and the lamb, not just one or the other. You know, I, I was looking at the sun today as I was uh, taking a walk this afternoon. The sun was getting low in the sky, and I was walking down the street, and the sun was literally directly in front of my eyes with no trees blocking it. In other words, it was uh, like a channel. It was just right on the road. Very uh, picturesque, right? It was perfect. 
But the sun wasn't low enough where it wasn't, you know, having less power yet. It wasn't really low where, you know, you could look at it. It was powerful. It was powerful and it was right in my eyes, and yet I couldn't take my eyes away from it. And it's the power of the sun is unbelievable, right? When you get down to it, yet you're drawn to it and you're comforted by it. Doesn't that sound like the light, Jesus Christ? Doesn't that sound like the lion and the lamb? Omnipotence, but gentleness. And that's God. That's, that's God. He has the right to have power, all power and wrath and make the final decision. And yet he doesn't want to make any bad decision for anybody. He wants everybody to come along out of grace and love. So anyway, real power is never lopsided like people want it to be. I mean, in other words, like, do you really want a weak God? This has come up in the past. Do you really want a weak God that doesn't have the power to snap a tree in half like happened this couple days ago with all the winds? I saw some trees, they would snap like matchsticks. Tree trunks, what, two feet, three feet in diameter. You look at the, the wood, right? And, and you, you, you have to stand in awe of God's power. You have to. And yet he's love. But that's what draws you to him, isn't it? The fact that he has the power to back up what he says. It's not a wish list thing. It's not a, you know, well, if, what, if, what if the other God beats him? What if Satan beats him one day? There's none of that. There's no possibility of that. There's no opening for that because of the word. The word tells us, you know, gives us all the reassurances in the world, all the proofs we want. And that's what gives us the security that we're in the hands of the lion and the lamb. So anyway, in today's Christianity, it's watered down, as we know. They watered down the word. They watered down the gospel. They watered down even the righteousness of the Savior. And they tell people what they want to hear, skirting the ultimate truth found in the word of God. But I was thinking about this. What good is preaching if it's not the truth? Like, what are these people preaching in some churches? What good is preaching if, if you don't have the truth? Why are you even doing it? Now, there's a whole lot of fleshly reasons people are doing it, but what a sad situation. Preaching without the truth? Without answers? Confident answers that we can hang our hat on? But people like to put their demands on God, as came up on Sunday. So just so long, so long as you know God meets my demands, or this church teaches something about God meeting my demands, I'm in. Because I want some of this religion in my life because it makes me feel good. It fit, gets me into the community. It's good for my kids. Bunch of deception without the word. So, by the grace of God, God uses life itself to break men's hearts. And we can be so sympathetic to broken hearts sometimes. Uh, just consider all the songs written about it on the topic. But God has no problem breaking man's heart, for his heart is wretched by nature. Our hearts are wretched by nature. We're born in sin. The very best thing God can do for man is to break his heart. While at face value, that sounds awful, but it's actually quite gracious. Man is born with a sinful nature and therefore a rebellious heart. And this goes for the sweetest old lady you know or the nicest little kid you know. Everyone's born with a rebellious heart. The heart that demands things of God and dismisses his word. That heart that every man has. And for this reason, man needs to be broken kind of like a wild stallion needs to be broken. Somebody's got to break that horse because it's just out of control. And that's a picture of our arrogance. And we all got it. It's universal, folks. All different shades and colors of arrogance that sometimes don't look like arrogance, but we all got it. Deep down, our ugly, fleshly heart we're born with. The arrogance that says, I don't really need God. 
or I'm good enough, or I'll find a way, or, you know, I want God to be like this, not like that. That's just sheer arrogance, as though you have a say in your own creation. It's insane. We're all similar in this rebellious nature that we're born with. Let me give you an example. We all like to think we're right about everything. Amen? Come on, be honest. Are you ever wrong? Seriously, you're not wrong. Come on. <laughs> when people tell you you're wrong, you're like, you don't understand. I'm right. Well, what is that thing in us that doesn't want to give up or be shown wrong? Arrogance? Just maybe? Why is that feeling so strong and dominating in us? Well, we always want to be right. Why? What's, what's the problem? Why can't you be wrong? Why can't you be wrong? What is it? It's a sick heart that says I'm better than, you know, what's the phrase I'm looking for? I'm really good. <laughs> I'm better than I think I am. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. The heart's like, you know, I'm good. Don't tell me anything I'm wrong. I'm a sweet person, but I'll be a lion. I'll be a tiger if you say I'm wrong. It's that sick, arrogant, wild stallion in us, that, that heart. And God, therefore, has to break hearts. It's a good thing. Without such grace, man will never be humble enough to be on his knees, at least in his soul. You know what I mean? That's why I put that in quotes. But without such grace as God breaking man's heart, he won't be humble enough to be on his knees before God, which is the only place Christ can be received for eternal life. In humility, humble, repentant faith, thank God God breaks our hearts or allows people to break our hearts. And now, from that position, one can receive the word implanted, which is able to what? Deliver him. But until then, there's no deliverance. There's no freedom. There's no happiness. There's no confidence in eternal life. So again, on the board, a broken heart isn't always a bad thing. In fact, it's the first thing God does for an unbeliever in his salvation. And once someone surrenders to Christ, he's made new, and there's a growth that occurs in the believer. And the Spirit's been very practical with us lately, reminding us of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ and how He does all the good work in us. There is good work to be done, but it's totally through His power, by grace, through faith. And we've been seeing how sanctification happens in the life of a believer. And anytime there's godly movement in our lives under the power of the Word and the Spirit, we may rightly say that it's a part of our sanctification. We should rejoice at seeing any kind of change in ourselves where we're becoming more like Christ. And sometimes you don't always see it, but you get times in your life that you'll see it, or you'll get times where people uh, say something or show you something you're whatever doing or thinking differently. And we should rejoice because that's God working in us, working things out in us. This sanctification is the fruit of faith that we see coming forth with great force in the book of James. The fruit of faith. God's actually doing it in you, yet you are willfully going forward in His plan for you. So we heard on Sunday again about the misinterpreting of the book of James, and a lot of so-called Christians misinterpret the book of James. Why? Because deep down they want to. The flesh loves religion. The flesh wants a piece of the action, wants a piece of the credit. For example, human good works to satisfy God's justice or righteousness. Why? Because the cross is foolishness to the flesh. So they'll stay fleshly and have a peace in it. However, to we who believe, the cross is everything but not to many so-called Christians. But when a humble believer reads the book of James, here's what he'll see. 
And please pay attention here. This is a very important point the Spirit's making regarding having the proper perspective on the board, regarding the power in the book of James. What we see is not the power of man through his own faith. What we see is the power of God through the faith he's given us. That's what you should see when you read the book of James. That's like the right perspective. It's not about the power of man and his own faith willing it to happen. It's seeing the power of God working through us, through faith, the faith that he's given us to do any works he wants us to do. So the prior one there is legalism or religion. The latter one is grace. Religious people will read the book of James and say, oh, here's my chance. I can be involved in my own salvation to show how good I can be, to show I can be better than others or better than most people or better than most Christians. That's what the flesh, the flesh is like drooling when it reads the book of James from the wrong perspective. It's like, ah, my piece of the pie. Here we go. Let me show people I'm a little bit better than them. This is one reason Catholics love to quote the book of James. They it's one of their favorite books because they use it as a platform for human works being involved in salvation. And by misinterpreting it, they put the cart before the horse, creating a way to earn their own salvation, creating some type of credit in the salvation process. But that's not what James is saying at all through the Spirit. The book of James is about the good result of true faith being granted to a humble, repentant sinner. It's about the good result of true faith. Uh, like we've been learning, God's grace never fails. That's really what we see. Go to James 1.5 again. James 1.5. As I try to pick a place to close here. Verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we also saw on Sunday on the board, a faith in the wrong object is not powerful at all. For example, man having faith in himself or his own abilities or his own goodness. But as we see here, if man asks of God for more faith, it is supplied to him. It's given to him completely by the gracious hand of the sovereign God of the universe. It's a provision of God, the faith itself. So how do we do anything good? by asking of God. Look at verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. There's power, by the way. He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. There's a picture of power versus power, by the way. Little p versus big P. The anger of man, it doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. You can try as hard as you want. You can try to force it as hard as you can. You'll never achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, verse 21, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted. That's the power of God, folks. Receive the word implanted, which is able to deliver your souls or save your souls. On the board, able to save your souls. God uses the word implanted not only to save us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin in our daily lives. 
uses it not only to save us from damnation, but also from damage in this life. The Word of God is the only thing that's going to rescue us or deliver us from the lies in the devil's world. Look at verse 21 again. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. A doer, by the way, has power, or chooses to receive God's power by faith. That's all a doer is. A doer is not doing it on his own. He's saying, I'm willing. Give me more faith. I need the power. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And look at James 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you say to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So again, the power comes from God, including the very faith to fulfill or produce these good deeds God wants us to do. So again, on the board, power in the book of James, what we see is not the power of man through his own faith. What we see is the power of God through the faith he has given us. The prior is legalism or religion. The latter is grace. And what we see here as we close in James chapter 2 is what the Lord himself called vindication by one's own deeds. How do we know if someone is from God or not? How did the Lord tell people they would know if he was from God? Basically, he said, if you don't believe my words, believe my actions. Believe my good deeds. My good deeds prove that my words are true. In other words, my faith is real. And then the true God, how do you know? Because look at the fruit. Look at the goodness that God has produced in me by grace through faith. It's not of myself. We all can admit that. Just think about your past. So on the board, being vindicated by deeds. As the believer grows up spiritually through God's word and spirit, he will be vindicated in his life by good deeds or good fruit. Matthew eleven eighteen through 19, Luke 7, 33 through 35, and John 4, 24. Uh, let's go to at least Matthew eleven eighteen. Matthew eleven eighteen. So this is simply a result of the changes that God has made in the believer. As we've studied, the true believer is now a new creature in Christ with a new heart. He's brand new. Christ lives inside of him. God's grace provides the power and perseverance for the believer to walk in the good works he's been assigned. And, and that's what James was talking about. On the board, before we read Matthew 11, look what Paul said when he got knocked off his high horse. He said, what shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. Every believer has an assignment. A certain calling, a certain mission for their life. The Great Commission is included somehow, some way, although we all have different roles. But God's grace provides everything we need to fulfill His plan for our lives. We've heard that before a few hundred times. So look at Matthew 11, verse 18. 
For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus, the Lord himself, talking about himself here, came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax uh, gatherers and sinners. In other words, you can't please anybody, no matter what you do. If they're going to be against you, they're going to be against you. And look what the Lord says. Yet wisdom is vindicated or justified by her deeds. Jesus would say, how do you know I'm from God? If you don't want to believe my words, all right, just look at my deeds. And since we have one more minute, go to Luke 7.33. Luke 7.33. I'm milking the clock, as they say in sports. But this is good. And this goes for us as believers, as, as God's children, as those in Christ. He's like, this is true about you. Let, let, and let your deeds prove your faith. Luke 7, 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. And children here is a synonym for divine good production, good deeds. It means there will be a good result from godly wisdom. So if you don't want to believe my words, if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, even though I'm trying to tell you it is, just look at my deeds. We'll just watch my life because God's going to produce a certain good thing in it, the proof of my faith, and you're going to have it to behold, so to speak. There's a certain goodness that is foreign to the world that you're going to see, that's foreign to religion and religious churches even, that one day will be the evidence for them to come along. Turn to the word. So true faith in the true God is vindicated by its deeds. On the board, the production or divine good works in the lives of John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus proved the accusations of the religious Pharisees to be false. And so the lives we live can prove the same in the view of those trapped in religion, those watching us. 1 Peter 1.7 the proof of your faith, more precious than gold. And that's what James was really talking about. And look what the Lord said on the board in John 5, 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which, which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. If you don't want to believe my words, that's fine, but just look. What do you have to say about this supernatural goodness, this change in my life, how Christ has changed me, for example? What, what, what rational explanation do you give for that? You know my past, for example, you might say. You know it's not me. You know I'm not good, even though I tried to be. Just look at the works. They testify about me that the Father has sent me. So by following Christ in humility, we will be vindicated in the eyes of men by our good works. And no matter what men say about you, religious people, family members, whatever, it's the proof of your faith that stands as a testimony that God is in you. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your grace, your provisions the provisions of your power to us, your word and your spirit. And Father, we ask that you help us have more faith, increase our faith, so that we have more power to do the deeds you've assigned to us, to bring you tremendous glory in this world before it's too late, before the end comes. We thank you for the privilege of serving you. And we ask that you help us be a light to the world and have our good deeds bring more people to see the true Christ in us. And to see Christ is the only way, the only hope, the only way to salvation. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen.